With a spirit that had crippled her for 18 years, she was bent over and she was unable to stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and he said, Woman, you are set free from your ailment. When he laid his hands on her, immediately she stood up straight and she began praising God. But the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had cured on the Sabbath, kept saying to the crowd, There are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured and not on the Sabbath. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to give it water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 long years, be set free from this bondage on the Sabbath day? When he said this, all his opponents were put to shame, and the entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things that he was doing. He said, therefore, what, the kingdom, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what should I compare it? It is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in the garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. This is the story of God for the people of God. Would you say with me, thanks be to God. So the hope in this passage is that the kingdom of God is present. The kingdom of God is at hand. Now, it's not in the way that people were expecting with a bang defeating the Roman army, but it is instead in a small way with a healing, some relief. For a woman who was bent over and crippled for 18 years. Hebraically, numbers can have meaning. And so the number 18 means life. It's a lucky number. Might be the luckiest of numbers, Hebraically speaking. This is, in fact, this woman's lucky day. She is healed. Now, I wouldn't exactly say that I had a lucky day this week, but I had one of those mornings where everything seemed to be working well in my house. It was on Thursday morning. My middle child is in Washington, D.C., and I got word from her that she was warm enough, that she had a warm enough hat, and she was having a good morning. Um, I also got an email back from a place that I, uh, where I had requested, I'd requested on that VRBO website, could I have this particular house for spring break? And I thought it'll never happen. It's already gone, but we got it. And then um, I got word that there was some good news about a friend's health that I was praying for. And it just seemed like for at least a couple of hours in my world, in my little world, Things seem to be working well. Things seem to be coming together. I bet you've had a morning or a day like that. So this scene in chapter 13 is like a good morning or a good day where things are working well, but it's intensified. It is multiplied by this number 18, right? So it's this good morning that's multiplied by the luckiest life-giving number, 18. Even though it's the Sabbath, this woman who appears in the synagogue, she's healed and she's given life. 
And, and when the leader of the synagogue voices his opposition to Jesus because Jesus is working on the Sabbath, we get, we get that the revelation of the kingdom of God isn't coming like the religious leaders expected either. The kingdom of God doesn't show up like military might and it doesn't show up like religious control. But instead, in this chapter in Luke's gospel, we see that it's rolling out, that it is present, that it is here. It's clear in verse 20. I don't know if you caught this. Verse 20 says this. Jesus says to those who are around him, to what should I compare the kingdom of God? Right there in that verse is the phrase kingdom of God. What should I compare it to? And so we see that the kingdom of God is present. But beyond that, I want you to know that this is a quote from Isaiah. It's a quote from Isaiah chapter 40. And in the middle of that chapter, 40 and Isaiah, are the words, With whom would you compare God? What image would you choose? And I think that's a really good question. So if you pick it from Luke chapter 13 or Isaiah chapter 40, that's a good question to consider um, this week. Or actually, we are considering it all of Lent. Because all of Lent, we're going to be talking about the metaphors, about the parables that Jesus chooses to compare God's identity, to compare the kingdom of God. Isaiah, in chapter 40, chooses several images. There's grass and sheep and stars and dust and water droplets, all in Isaiah. And so then Jesus, in this tradition of Isaiah or other Hebraic writers, he's in that tradition when he compares the kingdom of God to something that's very ordinary when he says that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. I really like this because it tells me that I have immediate access to what is sacred and what is holy. It's here. It's now. It's within my reach. I can get it. I understand it. I know these things. This parable of the mustard seed in Matthew's gospel is found in a list of parables. So not only does Jesus tell the mustard seed parable, but then he talks about the dough and the yeast. He talks about a treasure that's hidden, a pearl of great price, and a fisherman's net. And preacher Barbara Brown Taylor says, Here are the places that we are to look for the rule and the presence and the will of God in a man, in a woman, in a field, in bread, in seed, in a bird, in yeast, in dough, in water, in fish. I know those things. I get those images. They are always before me. They are part of my every day. Our image for today is the mustard seed. They're up here on the altar in these votives. There's not much to a mustard seed, is there? <laughs> The first most obvious thing about a seed, a mustard seed, is its size. Luke doesn't spell this out, but both Matthew and Mark do. Matthew and Mark say that the mustard seed is the smallest of seeds. 
Maybe Luke knew that we just get that, that it's tiny, that it's small, it's not much to look at. It takes about 750 mustard seeds to make a gram, so it's hardly even noticeable. Yet, all that is needed is there. All that is needed is in the seed. St. Therese lived in the 1800s in France. She nicknamed herself, we still know her as the little flower, but she nicknamed herself the little flower because she said, I am not one of the great of the faithful. I am not like a great tree. I am not like a great oak. I am instead just a little flower. St. Therese died at age 24 in a convent, and her sisters in the convent said, that she had accomplished so few things in her life that they had nothing to put in her obituary. And yet she is remembered as a saint. She is remembered for writing the words, I am a very little soul who can offer very little things in this world. And she is remembered because even though she had just a little small amount, she offered it. She offered it freely. She wrote, let us keep from all that glitters and let us love our littleness. Learning to love my littleness is about dropping my desire to acquire, my desire to accomplish, and just to be here to contribute to what God is doing, to say yes to life when opportunities arise for me to say yes. It is the truth of the great reversal of the gospel that what is small can also be tremendous. That's the thing about the mustard seed. The thing about the mustard seed is that when it's hidden in dirt, it becomes, well, what our translation says is a tree. In reality, it is this huge invasive shrub. This huge invasive shrub that can grow to be as tall as 10 feet. And its roots are so strong and so shallow that it spreads quickly. The mustard plant even transplants well. You can dig it up and move it to foreign soil. And it actually grows stronger and bigger when you transplant it. So I think of the South Texas equivalent might be something like cedar, right? I, I, can, I can remember my grandfather fighting the cedar on his hill country property. It was like a battle for my grandfather because he had this strategy where he was going to obliterate it. And it required not just his own arms, but it required like a battalion of men that he brought onto the property. It just invaded. That's what cedar did to his property. And I believe that the invasiveness of the mustard plant is an interesting quality for us to consider for, and for Jesus' contemporaries to consider because they definitely knew a thing or two about being overcome by a force, both a military force and a religious force. They knew what that was like. But this image of the mustard plant has an important distinction. The mustard plant takes over. It is invasive. But as it is invasive, it provides food. It provides shelter. The metaphor says, the parable says, the birds nest or they perch in the branches 
of the mustard plant. And that isn't happening in the synagogue. The leader's response to the woman's healing is callous and it's uncaring. And we know that the Roman government sure isn't providing a safe place for the vulnerable either. Just a few verses earlier at the beginning of chapter 13, it's reported that Pilate has killed a group of Galileans who are making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. He mixes their blood with the blood of their sacrifices. The mustard plant, as Jesus describes it, is invasive, but it is invasive with care. It is invasive with shelter. It is invasive with provision and compassion. It is a place for those who are vulnerable. In the pastor's meeting this week, Ryan Jacobson showed me that in this passage of Scripture, in its original version in Greek, there's a play on words. And so there is this word that is translated into English as rest or to settle or to nest. And that's used to describe what the bird does in the mustard plant. But earlier in the passage, there's a very similar word that is used and it's translated to shame or to frustrate. And this word is used to describe Jesus' opponents. Jesus' opponents who grow more bitter in their opposition as he heals on the Sabbath are described as frustrated or put to shame. And so then the question emerges for me, which one is my place? Which one describes me? What is my response to invasive love? Am I frustrated and put to shame? Do I want to control more? Am I thinking, you know what that mustard plant really needs is a good trimming. I'll go get my clippers and I'll cut it back. Or am I free to celebrate? Because that's what the people who are following Jesus do at this point in the story. When the opponents get frustrated, the Jesus people are celebrating. And that's what seems to distinguish the faithful and the mob that surrounds Jesus, that they are cutting loose. They are free. And I think that the reason that the faithful can celebrate is that not only do they know they have a place, they experience that they are provided for, that they have a nest, that they are accepted. But they also get that the kingdom of God is big enough for others to have a place too. It's that invasive, and it provides that well. Dorothy Day told a story from her childhood about being eight years old during the San Francisco earthquake and watching people come over in boats from Oakland to help the survivors, she said the realization that she had in her childhood brain was, look at that, adults know how to take care of strangers. Why don't they do that all the time? (laughs) Brene Brown teaches that what separates us today, but what always separates us, is fear. She says, Fear is everywhere in 2018, and that we are our worst selves when we are afraid. In fear, 
we forget the connection that we have with one another. But when we allow ourselves to push past the fear and to actually experience and feel the pain, then we see that connection that we have with each other. She talks about watching volunteers in the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey because, you know, Brene Brown lives in Houston. And she says that the Cajun Navy came to her street where there was six feet of water and fishing boats. And they pulled people out of the houses on her street. She said they rescued everyone. Not one person asked, who did you vote for before they pulled a person onto the boat? But instead, instead they opted Those people who came from Louisiana, they opted for living into the pain, to showing up in the pain, and to seeing the connection that they had with other people. It was like Brene Brown came right out of the podcast, and she looked me in my eyes, and she said, Religious leaders who opt for comfort over courage, are not long for this world. Darn. I really like comfort. And I can remember what it was like to be a comfortable religious leader. It hasn't been that long since we've been comfortable. The call instead, she said, in the church, the call instead during a time of change when the kingdom of God is rolling out is to stay curious to be kind, and to listen passionately. We started with a parable, and so let's end with a parable. This is just a story I made up. A mother had two daughters. Because she had a surprise to share with them, she bought them both necklaces. Each of the necklaces had the same words on them. The words were big sister. The older daughter opened her present and she cried tears of joy. We're going to have a baby in this house. Yay! But the younger daughter also cried and she said, I had a dream about this and it was like a nightmare. Jesus really said, In my father's house, there are many rooms. In my father's house, there are many rooms. How do you feel about sharing? Would you pray with me? Lord God, you are ruler of the universe. And we rejoice that your kingdom covers our fear with connection and also with provision. There is enough for everyone. This morning we see gold, and we experience your good care. This day and every day is our lucky day because we are healed, we are loved, and we want to be part of your expanding, invasive kingdom. Would you keep us curious? Would you press each of us to be kind, and would you open our ears? Amen.